Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 62. This is my grandma's Bible, and she has on the inside cover of it Psalm 62. It's called the only Psalm. And the reason it's called the only Psalm is not because there isn't 149 others, but primarily because the word only is used over and over again in the Psalm. Primarily, he only is my rock and my salvation. So it's repetitive, and it's called the only Psalm for that reason. Psalm 62 this morning. Truly my soul waits for God, and from him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, and he is my defense. I will not be greatly moved. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you. Like a leaning wall and a tottering fence, they only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies, they bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly, Selah. But my soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my salvation and my refuge is in God. So trust in him at all times, you people, and pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us, Selah. But surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed in the balances, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. And if riches increase, don't set your heart on them. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. David, and it's thought by some that he wrote this as Absalom was coming into town and David was running out of town, thus the reference to those who were trying to cast him down from his high position. And so there's those who speculate that uh, as he's leaving towards the Mount of Olives and Solomon is coming in, that that's when this was penned. I couldn't verify that, but it very, very well could be. But through it all, even though as David was maybe thinking the Lord is raising up one and taking down another. He didn't know. All he knew for sure that God is the only one that's stable. And no matter what happens in his society, if that was a setting, there would have been a change in administration from David to Absalom. But he was confident that God was just, God was righteous, and that he was his rock and his salvation. And there was a stability that David had even when confronting a Goliath, David was stable. He was confident in an unstable world that he was under the authority of a very competent and stable God. In our world today, we're beginning to see a lot of instability. It seems like we're spinning out of control. One of the first things, before I even get into our message this morning, is address a political issue on a national level that everybody's been watching for the last two weeks nonstop. But I want to I take the opportunity and address it from the pulpit as a pastor to a congregation that this is something that actually is foretold in the last days. In Matthew 24, when asked for signs, saying, Lord, what's it going to be like when you come again? The Lord gave a lot of signs indicating what to look for. And you're not going to get this on CNN or Fox News or anywhere else as far as I know. But there is a black Baptist pastor that I'm going to introduce you to this morning that has addressed it openly too. Jesus said in the generation that sees his coming, many will be offended, many will betray one another and hate one another. 
Many false prophets will arise and deceive many. And then he says that because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Vadi Bakum, he's a pastor of Grace Family Baptist Church in Spring, Texas. When all this was hitting the fan in Ferguson, he, was, he had no idea what was going on. He was down doing missionary work in Africa. And before I go any further, I need to make a statement. Some of my best friends in the world are black. I think of Bastia. I think of my best friend who's in Africa right now. And uh, these are people who I consider very, very good friends. And I don't have, as far as color's concerned, I'm colorblind and I don't have a prejudiced bone in my body. So for those of you who know me, you understand that. A lot of you don't know me that are watching my internet, so I have to say it. Those are the facts. People that I think are some of the most dearest people in the world happen to be black in color. That being said, including uh, Ed Gaines, one of my favorite Calvary Chapel pastors, if you want to write this down and just research this more later, this is a different perspective of lawlessness. And my point, and let me repeat it several times, David says God is his rock in difficult times. And right now, Our country is in difficult times, unstable, not just in Ferguson, but in Macy's department store in New York City, on the Golden Gate from San Francisco to L.A. It's uh, across the country. It is spreading, and it's, it's simply, as the scripture says, lawlessness. And one of my points that I want to make is it's exactly what the Lord said would be happening right before he came back. Now, this brother here, you can Google Again, his name is Pastor Vaddy Bachman, Grace Baptist Spring Church in, in Dallas. You can YouTube him. Judy and I did. And if I had more time, I'd play the whole thing for you. One of the arguments is, oh, white people just don't get it or understand. So I wanted a black pastor from his perspective saying this is not a black or white issue. This is a sin issue. And this is an issue that is lacking where the gospel needs to be presented. So bear with me as I read a couple paragraphs. Hopefully it'll stimulate you enough to do a little bit of your own research. When he came back from Africa, they were talking about Ferguson. He thought it was somebody in his church that needed help. He had no clue. And so people demanded that he address the issue, and simply because they demanded that he would address it, he chose not to. And then he looked into it a little bit for himself, and after a couple weeks, he decided, no, I am going to address this for one reason. He's raising seven sons, and they're all black. And so he did He is well-known in the South. I'll be honest with you, I've never heard of him before. But I'm quoting him, and so bear with me as I read a couple of paragraphs this morning. He says, as a pastor, I have a responsibility to my flock. If those of whose souls I care, Hebrews 13, 17. I want to think through these issues. I'm obligated to them just as I am to you. I have a duty to walk through them, these issues, with the best of my ability and with sensitivity to these particular needs. But more importantly... It worries me that so many Christians view themselves primarily as members of this or that ethnic community more than they see themselves as members of the body of Christ. The underlying malady that gives rise to all the rest of these epidemics is morality and fatherlessness, emphasis on fatherlessness. We know that fatherlessness is the number one indicator of future violence, dropout rates, out-of-wedlock births, and future incarcerations. And in the black community, more than 70% of all children are born out of wedlock. Fatherlessness is the ban of the black community. I had to edit this article, but he gave the stats of uh, the murder ratio between black against black and black against the officer. 
it was like 90% of it would be black on black rather than the minority. Nor is the plague forced on us. It's as common as the morning dew and as overlooked as dust under a refrigerator. Where are the marches against this travesty? Where are the protesters who demand better? Where are the black leaders? And then, these are his words, oh, that's right, they have just as many illegitimate children as those on the streets as anyone else. Again, it's common knowledge that this is the most immediate root cause of the ill plaguing black America. As a father of seven black men, I tell them to be aware of the fact that there may be times when they may get a closer look, an unwelcome stop, or worse. However, I don't tell them that this means they need to live with a chip on their shoulder or that the world is out to get them. I certainly don't tell them that they need to go out and riot, especially when that involves destroying black-owned businesses. I tell them that there are people in the world who need to get to know black people as oppressed uh, to just knowing about us. I tell them that they will do far more good interacting with these people and shining the light of Jesus Christ than they will by carrying signs. I tell them, never avenge yourself, but that vengeance, as it says, is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, who quotes Romans twelve nine. And I tell them that there are worse things than suffering injustice. That's why we must heed Peter's words, but in your hearts, Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you about and the reason for the hope that you have within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good that it should be God's will than for doing evil." And then he sums it up by saying, in the, in the end, the best lesson my children can learn from Ferguson is not that they need to be on the lookout for white cops. It's far more than that. I use this teachable moment to remind them that God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that's what he's going to reap. Moments before his death, Michael Brown had violently robbed a man in a store a man doing the best he could to make a living. Minutes later, Brown reaped what he sowed and was gunned down in the street. That's the sad truth. My sons have far more to fear from making bad choices than they have the fear from the police. The overwhelming majority of police officers are decent people just trying to make a living. They are much more likely to help you than they are to harm you. A life of thuggery, however, is never your friend, and in the end it will cost you, and sometimes it costs you everything. I wanted to gravitate to it for one reason this morning, is because I looked at it from a little bit different perspective, and that is, as you turn in your Bibles to (laughs) 2 Timothy chapter 3. I think it's my job as a pastor to take current events and not look at them from a political perspective, but from a biblical perspective. And there isn't any person here that isn't going to be surfing channels and not come across this and see it again and again and again. But as believers, is it being addressed and how should we view it as believers? It gives me an opportunity this morning to talk a little bit about dominion theology. 
Now, this is a doctrine in the church, and if, if I would sum it up brief, briefly, it would go something like this. That through evangelism, that the church as a whole is going to evangelize the entire world. And the world is going to come to such a pristine state, and there's going to be such order because of the gospel, that then and only then can Jesus Christ return. It's called dominion now theology, or dominionism, that we take dominion over the world. But I, want, I have to tell you that Jesus told us just the opposite would be taking place. And I want to just have you open your eyes and look what's going on in our own country. Which way are we going? Are we getting better and better? Or are we getting worse and worse as we, as we watch things unfold? I reject dominion theology. It's false teaching and it, means, it needs to be exposed as such. When Jesus was asked straight out what would what it's going to be like when he comes again, he didn't pull any punches. He just said, unless I return, it's going to be so bad that nobody's going to be alive. So that tells me things are going to get worse and worse. He says, when I return, will I find faith on the earth? And so it's got to be biblically centered. We have to look at it through the lens of the word of God as we see what's taking place in the world in which we do today. And instead of being stirred up by the mobs, many of them who have no biblical background at all. So in, in uh, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, again, this is now Paul writing to a young pastor. He says, but know this, that uh, in the last times, perilous times are going to come. Men will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful and unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders. They won't have self-control. They'll be brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Oh, they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. From such people turn aside. Look over at verse 12 and 13. It says, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil men and impostors will grow, notice, worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. The Bible tells me that it's going to get worse and worse, not dominion theology get better and better. So I want to give me an amen at this point somewhere. This is what God's word teaches. Well, what should we do in light of that? I'm glad you asked that question this morning. Verse 14 tells us, but as for you, all right, now what about us? You continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of knowing uh, from whom you have learned them, that from your childhood, he's talking about Timothy now, from your childhood, Timothy, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, because all scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and righteousness, that the man of God might be fully equipped for every good work. And so Paul writing Timothy uh, tells us that when we see the lawlessness um, abounding in our land, we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, It's sin, just like uh, my brother here has has uh, so well laid it out, and simply calling um, a spade a spade. So as for us, we 
um, have the anchor of the scriptures, and that's where we're pointed to. And as we look at this, um, in Hebrews 6 and 19, it says we have this anchor for the soul. You know, our whole country's getting tossed to and fro, back and forth. There's no stability in it. But you'll have stability because of the anchor of your soul, both sure and steadfast. And um, it's that rock that David was writing about in Psalm 62, the foundation. Let me ask you a question. What's, your, what's the foundation of your life? Do you have one? First Corinthians 3.11, no other foundation can anybody lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So I want to talk a little bit about, and sidetrack this morning on Psalm 62, what people actually try to build their life on to bring satisfaction, well, how they identify with their life. And in, in doing that, the guys on Saturday morning just finished up um, Ecclesiastes, but I, I would like to go back to it this morning. So let's turn back to um, King David's son, David reigned for 40 years and pretty much set Solomon up. Um, He was able to concentrate on building the temple. He wrote the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, which we finished in men's prayer yesterday. But he had resources and he had the means by his wealth to pretty much do and try anything that he wanted to. As far as wisdom, when he became king, he asked God straight out. He said, I'm incompetent. I'm a child. I don't know how to go in. I don't know how to come out. And I need your help big time. And the Lord says, go ahead. The Lord appeared to him and says, what do you want, Solomon? I'll give you anything that you want. And he says, well, I don't know how to come in. I don't know how to come out. I could sure use some wisdom, God, to judge these great people that belong to you. And 1 Kings chapter 3 said that that saying pleased the Lord. It says, I tell you what, Solomon, I'm going to make you the smartest man that ever walked this planet. Nobody before you, nobody after you is going to be as smart as you. I want to tell you that because what I'm about to say is a man who's been there and done that. And this is, you know, people will listen to you if you think you've you've walked in their shoes a little bit. And... um, That's the idea of Solomon. He says, I want to talk to you about foundations and what I've tried in life to try to fill this empty spot in my heart. So if if you're in Ecclesiastes, let me introduce you to him in chapter one, verse 12. He says, I'm the preacher. (laughs) As king over Israel in in, uh, Jerusalem. And I set my heart to seek and search out wisdom concerning all that is done under the sun. This grievous task God has given to the sons of men by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Another word for vanity there is empty. In other words, all is empty and grasping for the wind. And verses uh, uh, here in much wisdom Uh, He goes on to say um, in verse 16, he said, I communed with my heart saying, look, I've attained greatness. I've attained more wisdom 
than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understanding, great wisdom and knowledge. And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive that this also is grasping in the wind. Notice his rational. He says, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases in knowledge increases sorrow. Interesting. And yet, isn't it the truth that as parents, the one thing that we want for our children as they grow is to have a higher education. We want to see them succeed. We want to see them happy. And yet, the wisest men who ever lived says, if you take that route and that's what you're pursuing and that's your pursuit, you're going to find out it leads to much frustration for with much wisdom because much grief. Well, these are just the stats. People who've grown up with a simple childlike faith, Jesus said, look, unless you become like a little child, you can't even go to heaven. Unless you have faith. And how do you get faith? Only by the book that you hold in your hand this morning. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes from this book. So you want to give me an amen on that? All right, but this, now these are the stats. 85 to 90% of the kids that leave the church and go on to college, their faith is wiped out in one year by the college professor. Those are the stats. And so my question is, from eternal perspective, what's more important? A higher education or somebody losing their faith? No wonder so many people are homeschooling these days. And as we look at the public school system, are we saying that's getting better and better? No, it's getting worse and worse. And some of this stuff blows my mind even, what's going on. This is what Jesus had to say about any one of these college professors that is stumbling and destroying the faith of those that you brought, that you gave your whole life to, bringing them up in the ways of the Lord. Jesus said, Matthew, or Mark 9, Whosoever causes one of these little ones of mine who believes in me to stumble, he said it's better for that guy to have a millstone hung around his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea rather than stand before me on judgment day. You're the one who undermined that child's faith. You're the one who took him down. That's what Jesus has to say to that college professor. On the contrary, it's interesting to me that God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put the shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put the shame the things which are mighty. We look at uh, the uh, political structure in the United Nations today, and I'm winging this off the top of my head because I don't remember the exact numbers, but was, it was 150 or 160-something to five that uh, Israel get rid of all of their nuclear armaments. America, Canada, and three other countries that I can't even name. So majority rules, that's wisdom, not according to the scriptures. So interesting that when the Lord prayed all night to pick his disciples, he came up with 12. Most of them were fishermen from up in the Galilee. They smelled pretty funny. And they were fishy characters, I mean, James and John were called sons of thunder because they, had, they were hotheads. Galileans were known for having a, a, a hotheads. Uh, when Jesus said he was from Galilee, the, the comment was, could anything good come out of Galilee? Well, that's where Jesus came from, Galilee. But after they spent three years with Jesus, we read in Acts 4 that 
Peter and John were going to church one day to the synagogue. And there was a guy there, oh, he was there every day. He had his hands out. You can still go to Jerusalem and see guys with their hands out. And Peter looks at him and he says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And that guy got up and he walked out of there. Everybody knew who he was. So there was a buzz around town. The guy, the lame guy, he's walking. Well, how did that happen? Well, those, those two fishermen over there, Peter and John. So they confront Peter and John. What is this that you've done? And notice what the, this is their observation of Peter and John. Acts 4, verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men. They marveled. And they realized that he had been with Jesus. What made the difference between these two men? They simply knew Jesus. Anyone want to give me an amen or not? Jesus in one makes him a big time majority as far as he is concerned. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. What could they do? That guy wasn't walking, and now he's walking. Paul would say to the Corinthians, he says, look around. See your calling, brethren. There's not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble who are called. Now, lest you misunderstand me, I think the youngest person who is baptized in the Holy Spirit and has a relationship with the Lord has wisdom and knowledge, and that can grow. And so don't get me wrong. Paul says, no, don't, don't misunderstand. We speak wisdom among those who are wise. But if you try to explain your relationship with Christ with another person who is not born again, it's an exercise in futility. Because the natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit, neither can he because he hasn't been born again yet. I don't expect unbelievers to do anything different than unbelievers do. Don't expect them to tell the truth. I don't expect them to be forthright and upright. I don't expect their mouth to be clean, and so on and so forth. And um, uh, here, Solomon is saying, well, let's start out with wisdom, because so much of our society is consumed, but at what cost? So as we raise our kids, like the the, the, uh, brother who was raising his seven black sons, he says, boys, sit down. When you see him on YouTube, he, he gets together and he says, boys, sit down. This is why I have rules in the house. This is basically him saying it. This is why we do things this way. We have reasons that we do the things that we do. All right, let's go to um, um, chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes. This is one that, um, in verse 10, Do not say were the former days better than these, for you do not inquire wisely concerning this. You ever reminisce and say, oh, I wish we had the good old days back again. Oh, man, when I was, I was in high school, I was free as a breeze and, and uh, not a care in the world. Come on, you're not being honest. What were you thinking about when you were in high school? When am I going to get out of high school? Isn't that what you were thinking? And we're always thinking that uh, it's better back. Well, the wisest man in the world says that's not the case at all. And some people's lives are all consumed in the past. Ask any sports star. You know, their glory years, all they have is, is um, 
the memories. And in doing so, their life is spent and they have nothing really to look forward to. Well, what do the scriptures have to say about looking back? Solomon said it's not wise. Why am I bringing this up? Because I think there's going to be a falling away in the last days. You know why? Because people won't be looking forward to the Lord's coming and being excited about it, but somehow they begin to look back and reminisce. I had one brother say in men's prayer, you know, it's hard being a Christian. <laughs> Somebody want to say amen to that? It's hard being a Christian. And to uh, walk the road, especially if you're serious about serving him, because then you become a target. And, um, but this is what Jesus said about looking back. Luke 9, Jesus said, Anybody having put his hand to the plow and looking back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Once he begins to tell you that the reason he came is to bring forth the kingdom, he says that's what you're supposed to be praying about. Father, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Lord, we want you to come. We want you to reign. That's what we're living for. That's what we're praying for. In Colossians, Paul would write, if you're born again, then seek those things that are above where Jesus is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind, not on the good old days, but on things above that are not on the earth. For you died, uh, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Jesus, who is our life, appears, I like that. Not a part of my life, not a thing in, in my life. He is my life. Then you also will appear with him in glory. Luke 9 um, and Luke 17 and Jesus talking about um, being ready for his coming. He gave one illustration. He says, I just want you to remember Lot's wife. Ooh, what a Bible study in three words. Remember Lot's wife. Well, what's up with her? Well, God was about to bring judgment, just like he's about to bring judgment again. On the world, the Middle East is on fire. Our country's in lawlessness. Stage is being set. And as we, we look around, uh, I believe that the Lord will bring judgment. We're certainly due for it. And um, when Lot was being rescued, he gave, the angels gave one word of warning to the family. He says, whatever you do, don't look back. I mean, it's so bad back there, I don't want you looking back. But as they're leaving, sure enough, Lot's wife turned around and gave a look. And she was turned into a pillar of salt, symbolic lost, because that's where her heart was. Ecclesiastes 7.10 says, Do not say, where were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Yes, the days are going to get harder and harder. But the idea, we're told in the New Testament, as you see these things happen, continue in fellowship all the more and more, exhorting one another in, in love in the ways of the Lord. All right, let's go back a couple chapters to chapter five. Money seems to be something that we think will be stable. And um, Ecclesiastes 5, picking it up, oh, with verse 10. The danger of money and pursuing it. Nothing wrong with money. It's the love of money, of course, as the Bible says. But he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. And he who loves abundance with increase, this is also a vanity. When goods increase, 
they increase who eat them. So what profit has the owners except to see them in their eyes? The sleep of the laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich man uh, will not permit him to sleep. He's always going over the numbers in his head and thinking it through. Jesus told a parable about this guy that was so prosperous he had to build bigger barns. He said, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm really raking it in. I know I'll build bigger barns to, to keep my goods in for storage. And the Lord said, you're a fool. That you consider that, but this night your soul is going to be required of you. What profit if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? So even though we have this false illusion of a financial, quote, stability, it's not the rock that uh, Jesus was, or that David was talking about. And um, if we would go through all of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing that he doesn't try. From uh, the pleasures of uh, the world to hard labor to building projects, um, he goes through it all. I want you to see the end of the matter. Chapter 12 is about remembering your creator. It's one of the most poetic, (laughs) one of the most poetic ways of talking about growing old that I've ever read before. And um, I just like the way he portrays it. When you look through the windows dimly as your eyes and uh, your teeth begin to grind down and you eventually pass away. Verse 13, he says, okay, let's try to sum this all up. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. So after trying everything, he says, here's the bottom line. Fear God, keep his commandments, and this will be the whole duty of man, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it is good or bad. Just turn quickly back to Psalm 62. And that's exactly how Psalm 62 ends. He says, Lord, mercy belongs to you and you will render each one according to his own works. Ecclesiastes is about what can I do to have satisfaction in my heart, to have a meaningful life. Romans 8 verse 20 talking about the creation. In verse eight, it gets personal. It talks about the human condition. And he says about you and I that we were created in emptiness or futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Inside of each person that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a vacuum of emptiness. And they will try to fill it. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, travel, materialism, athleticism, Fill in the blank. And uh, basically, um, turn to John 4 at this time. Whatever in your life you're trying and you're saying, this isn't working, I'm still not happy. This isn't working, I'm still not happy. I've tried it all, I have it all. And yet, this void in my life is still there. And I'm not happy. And I'm not satisfied. I went online and Googled yesterday make sure I had my facts straight. I thought the Rolling Stones 
number one song of all time. It's, it's being challenged these days, but for years it was. Number one rock and roll song of all time, I can't get no satisfaction. And I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried. And this is, these are people that are, <laughs> and Mick is still trying to rock and roll, and he's getting pretty old. He's been rock and rolling in a wheelchair, I think, more than anything else. You know, but he's still trying to get out there to, uh, to, 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 to shake it around. And we go, give it up, Mick, you know. <laughs> you know, he's still trying. But through it all, he's admitting a deep, deep truth. Try it. It won't satisfy. I can't find no satisfaction. And that's what the Bible teaches. If you're in John chapter 4, Jesus would usually go three times a year from Jerusalem to the Galilee, always following the Jordan River, as we did on our last trip to Israel. You wouldn't go through Samaria. A couple different reasons, but the main one was they didn't get along. I could get lengthy into the history of the Samaritans, where they came from. It goes back to the fall of the, the ten tribes being taken by Assyria. And then the Assyrians sending back in uh, Syrians to the ten northern tribes, intermarrying with uh, the ten tribes. They became half-breeds, eventually known as the Samaritans. So they didn't get along because the Samaritans were not allowed to worship in Jerusalem. And so they came up with their own doctrine. Isaac was offered not on Mount Moriah, but Mount Gerizim. Noah's ark didn't come to rest on the mountains of Ararat. It came to rest on the mountains of Gerizim. And so this is blasphemy, of course, to a Jew, but they weren't allowed to worship in Jerusalem, and so they worshiped on Mount Gerizim. So Jesus, in chapter 4, says we must go through Samaria. Uh, we need to go there. So they came, in verse 5, to a city of Samaria, which is called Sakar, near the plot of ground, that Jacob gave birth to Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and, Jake, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey sat by the well, and it was about the sixth hour, which is noon, and a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Well, she's a Samaritan, and he's a Jew, and it's noon. First of all, you get your water in the morning or at night, not in the heat of the day. But she was there nonetheless. And Jesus strikes up a conversation with the gal and says, give me a drink. And the disciples had gone to get food, and the woman of Samaria said, how is it that you're a Jew? You're asking drink of me and I'm a Samaritan. For you know that us Jews and you Samaritans, we don't have any dealings with each other. And Jesus said unto her, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living waters. Never heard of that before. Starting to get her attention. And a woman said to him, Sir, I want you to notice that we've just gone from Jew to Sir, okay? You have nothing to draw, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than Jacob, who gave us this well, and we drank from it ourselves, and as his sons and his livestock? And then Jesus said this to her, and it's my point. Whoever drinks of this water 
will thirst again. And I want you just to fill in the blank. What are you trying to satisfy your life with? And what Jesus would say, if you drink of that, you'll thirst again because it just doesn't satisfy. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become into him like a fountain of spring springing up into everlasting life. Oh, I would have loved to have sit in on this Bible study. I would have loved to have seen the look on this woman's face as she's being drawn out, literally drawn out. Remember how it started? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We don't get along. What do you want? But little by little, she's opening up. There's a proverb that says counsel is drawn out by wisdom. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Little by little, this woman is opening up instead of closing up. And she said, give me this water, sir, that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And he says, okay, I will. Go call your husband. We'll talk about it. Oh, my husband. Hmm. Huh. Wish he went ahead and brought that up. Um, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, well, I guess you're telling me the truth. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now isn't your husband's boy. I suppose you're telling me the truth. Oh, my goodness. Nobody knew that. Oh, maybe about the one or the two or the three, but nobody knew about all five. And he knows about the guy I'm living with right now? Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. (laughs) Jew, sir, prophet? Well, the Lord is going right up that ladder. And then what was deep down inside, what was really inside of this woman, what's my point? Well, she couldn't find satisfaction with men. She tried and she tried and she tried. Gave up on marriage. So now she's just living, shacking up with this guy. She gave up on all of it. And now what was deep down inside is coming to the surface. And it's all about worshiping God. Our father worshiped on this mountain. It would have been Gerizim. You Jews say that Jerusalem is the place that we ought to be worshiping. And Jesus said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain or Jerusalem will they worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, for we know that we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. What was Jesus doing? Oh, we need to go to Samaria. Well, what for? Well, I see the heart of this woman up there. She's been through five husbands. She's living with a guy now. She's empty. She's hurting. And that's why I came into this world, to seek and to save that which was lost. Wherever Jesus went, he looked for the person with the greatest need and said, that's where I'm hanging out. And he'd met that person right where they were at. So he drew her open and he gave her Um, what she needed to hear. Why the husband thing? Well, if she's going to be converted, there needs to be repentance. There can be no conversion without repentance. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? I mean, real repentance. She needs to repent of where she's at. And by bringing that up, it exposed that sin that was in her life. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And I think the lights went on at this point. And I think she's getting it. He's not a Jew. He's not a sir. He's not a prophet. She said, you know, I've heard that the Messiah is coming, 
was called to Christ, and when he comes, well, he's going to tell us everything. And the Lord didn't pull any punches. He said, I who speak to you am he. And she got saved. And she began to go and tell people about Jesus. How do you know if a person is saved? Oh, they'll be telling other people about saved, from one beggar to another. I remember coming back, and oh, I was so excited. My two best friends, Pat and Jen, oh, they'll be so glad to hear what I got to share with them. Man, everything we've been looking for, I can't wait to tell them. And I told them, and they blew me off. They say, Dwight, go away. Talk to somebody else. Well, one of them got miraculously saved, and he's the one who's in Africa right now. What's he doing? Telling people how he got saved, how he met Jesus. You can't keep it in. Jesus told a guy that had healed his daughter, his blind man, I can't remember which it was, but he said, don't tell anybody. <laughs> how, do you tell them, how do you not tell somebody that, that you've just been healed from not being able to see your whole life? I've got to tell somebody. And you do. You have to go out and you have to share what has finally satisfied that deep longing that was in your heart. Let's begin to close this up, and I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 7 this morning. David said in Psalm 62, Lord, you only are my rock. You're the only one that can bring me any peace, any contentment, any satisfaction. Lord, it's all about you, the rock. So in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, talks about two different kinds of people. Verse 24, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now we're not exempt. What did we read in in, um, Timothy? All those who live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Suffer persecution. So this... He goes on to say that you're not exempt from what everybody else goes through in life. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on the house. In other words, he had a lot of storms and trials in his life, hard ones. But it didn't fall because it was founded on the rock. Jacob's foundation was on God. And when it was all taken away, he said, naked I came, naked I go, praise the Lord. But if you're building on all the things that Ecclesiastes, from education to money to your reputation, whatever your occupation may be, if that's your identity, if that's your foundation, then this next verse applies to you. Verse 26. Now everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Same storms of life came, the winds blew, beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Everybody goes through difficulties in life. David was running for his in Psalm 62. Absalom was coming into town. And what did he say? The Lord is my rock and my only salvation. Jesus, in talking to the scribes and the Pharisees who had rejected him, talks about being a rock. 
He said to him, the stones which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He was talking about himself being the foundation. And then he said, whoever falls on the stone will be broken. That's what happened to the woman at the well. She was opening up, being broken down little by little, and she was saved. But whom on ever it falls, it will grind him to powder. The person who understands the gospel and rejects it, someday the rock will come back and we'll have to stand and give an account. How did Ecclesiastes end? All things will be brought before God, whether good or bad. How does Psalm 62 end? Every man will give an account of his life. And there's no getting around any of that. One other issue before closing is that there is one God, only one God. I just read um, a musician's memoirs, 526 pages, and I was disillusioned and disheartened because he never got rooted and grounded when he supposedly gave his life to the Lord as a Christian because much of it is talking about other avenues and other ways that a person can come to their God. And it broke my heart because I have a lot of respect uh, for this particular individual. And it goes contrary to what the scriptures so clearly teach. And to me, uh, summing it up, here's an example of somebody who never got rooted and grounded in this book that you guys hold in your hands this morning. How are you going to discern what's happening in our society today? Does the Bible say anything about lawlessness? Oh, yeah. It says a whole lot. Well, what, tell me, what does it say about lawlessness? Well, it would be one of the chief signs of the last days. Ferguson's, Macy's, San Francisco, across the board, there's lawlessness. The Middle East is imploding. Bible have anything to say about that? Yes, and when you have a biblical perspective, then you go, huh, it's pretty late. I better make sure I'm watching my P's and Q's with my Savior, keep my nose in the book, and as it says, as we see these things begin to happen, do it all the more, not less. The Bible says there's gonna be a falling away. How do we not fall away? Have Bible studies like we're having this morning. Tie it into what's happening in the world and society in which we live so that we can give an answer for the hope that I have within me. I understand what's coming down, and I don't like it, and I can only tell you, unfortunately, it's going to get worse. What an uplifting, encouraging Bible study, Pastor Doyd. Great. You're making me feel so good this morning. Probably not, but it's the truth. And I'll take truth over feeling any day of the week. Amen? All right, so this is what the word of God has to say about Allah. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you though you may have not known me. Isaiah 44. Do not be afraid. Do not fear, for I have told you from that time and declared it. You are my witness. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. There's only one God. David said, he only is my rock and my salvation. I don't know why, but my grandma Shulo, in this well-worn Bible, it's like old Malcolm and Alwyn's song, I like to see a Bible that's been well used, a Bible well used, and the devil's not amused. Malcolm and Alwyn, this one was well used. But... For some reason, my grandma had the only psalm and uh, some comments, and I will close with 
my grandma's Bible on her front page. The only psalm. The 62nd psalm, frequently called the only psalm because the word only appears in it so frequently. My soul waits thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I will not be moved. It's a happy day when we come to the place uh, where our only expectation is from God. Too long, perhaps, we have looked to things or people to supply our needs and satisfy our, our wants. To reach the pinnacle of faith and peace, do not expect anything uh, from yourself. You will falter and you will fail. Do not place your hope in others either. Even if they are fellow heirs of glory, they too will fail. Do not trust in riches or in influences or in power. None of these will avail. Trust only in the Lord. He is our rock, our salvation. He is our strength and our power. Whether the needs be spiritual or temporal, whether the activities be religious or secular, whatever the circumstances, learn to say with David, my soul waits thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. Let's stand this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for David. And Lord, as he was going through his storm, he was able to call upon you as that God who is his rock, that through it is an anchor that doesn't change. Lord, we thank you that your word tells us that you're the same yesterday and today and forever. So Lord, we can look at this confused, turbulent world that we live in and see that you told us way ahead of time exactly what to expect. So, Lord, we see this morning more of uh, current events as just another one of, of the birth pains that uh, your word told us, told us to be looking for. Lord, we look for your kingdom. And we want to repent this morning, Lord, if we've been dealing too much with the past or building on a foundation that's nothing more than sand. Lord, help us get our priorities straight and honor the prayer that we so often pray that your kingdom would come. Lord, that we do look for your glorious returning in the blessed hope. Thank you for your word this morning, and bless your people as we go this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.